Now I want to read, please, from the New Testament, and firstly, uh, sorry, we'll read firstly from the Old Testament, the book of Ruth, please, and just a, a verse or two from chapter 1. <clears throat> Again, thank you very much for your presence here today. Trust that God will bless you, and the assembly here as well. Thank you very much for the hospitality and for the time that we've spent together. We trust that uh, more than fond memories that there will be changes that are made as a result of the teaching of the Word of God. Ruth, uh, the book of Ruth, please, and <clears throat> chapter 1, verse 16. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. And when she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left speaking unto her. So they too went until they came to Bethlehem. Now over please to the New Testament and to the epistle, firstly, of Paul to the Romans. <clears throat> Romans, please, chapter 8. Romans 8 and verse 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But, we, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of God, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Verse 12, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you live through the Spirit, if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Look at Titus, please. Titus chapter 2, verse 1, But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience, the aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, Obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men, likewise, exhort to be sober-minded. Finally, please, the epistle of Paul to the Philippians. <clears throat> Philippians in chapter 3, verse 13. Brethren, uh, verse 12 I think we'll take, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which I also I am apprehended of Christ. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as be perfectly thus minded, and if any... If in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we already have attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind 
the same thing. We trust that God will add a blessing to the reading of his word. Now, I'm not sure about expansive expository teaching this afternoon, but uh, I am conscious that in the corporate world, this time of day is referred to as the graveyard shift. And so in order to keep you from an early grave, I just want to maybe lighten things a little bit. That doesn't mean that we're going to dilute what we want to say, but I'm just going to just maybe lead a little bit of a meditation through a, a subject that is particularly on my mind. Yesterday, I was speaking to you about time, and we were speaking about the commodity of time, how we all have access to it by virtue of the fact that we're part of this universe. We have time, we are given time, and we were thinking really about knowing the time and redeeming the time. And uh, as has been pointed out to me on a number of occasions, I was so good with my time yesterday, I didn't get to my final point, which was spending the time or passing the time. Last evening, I was speaking to the young people, and really the burden of my message was to tell, what would I tell my 20-year-old self? And I was speaking last evening about the idea that really the one thing that I would like to say to myself back a generation ago would be this, that we should be setting or I should be setting my affection. And I was pointing out that the word really there is that I should be setting my mind on the things above and not on the things of this world. In this uh, little story that we've read from the book of Ruth, we've read about this delightful story. I dare say that in our panel discussion it might come up as an illustration. We've read this delightful story of uh, the years that the locusts had wasted, being restored by God, by a decision that Naomi made in order to go back to the house of bread, back to Bethlehem. And there's that delightful little passage that we've read together, a testimony of a young woman, a young Moabites, who was so impressed by the God that had, grabbed, uh, that had grabbed the attention of her mother-in-law, that she decided that there was nothing else to do but to go back with her. And through her testimony, whatever it was, the testimony wasn't finished by the disastrous decision that her and her husband had likely made years before, but there was a testimony that was established in the restoration of Naomi's soul. And so it grabbed the soul of Ruth, and she made that decision. I will go with you. Where you go, I will go. And your God will be my God, and your people will be my people. We know the words very well. They're very famous and very popular and helpful Bible words. I was just interested in the little expression at the end that the, that the, the narrator picks up. Having told us all about that and giving us the, the first-person description of what Ruth was saying to Naomi, he then just says this. And when she saw that she was steadfastly minded. In that advice that I was giving last evening about setting your mind on things above, really the idea, that's just really capturing the whole thing. Having a steadfast mind to set your affections on things above and not on the things of this earth requires a steadfast mind. It requires a mind that is focused on a world that you cannot see. It requires a mind that is focused on a scene that you have not yet anticipated. You've anticipated, but you haven't yet seen any of its drama and any of its glory. And to set your affection on things that you cannot yet see requires a certain steadfastness of mind. And so just for the few moments that I have left at my disposal, I want to speak to you about the steadfast mind. You know, there's nobody in the Bible that speaks more about the mind than the Apostle Paul. He has much to say about it. Just as I was thinking about the steadfast mind, 
And thinking about Naomi's decision to return and Ruth's decision to go with her, I was really thinking about the steadfastness of mind that was required and the determination, the grit that we might say, the will to see it right through to the end. That was a costly decision. And when I was thinking about that, I was really thinking about the opposite of that. James speaks about that. He says, you know, a double-minded man is unstable in everything. The idea of a double mind is to, is to be vacillating between one point and another. The double-minded man is one whose devotion is less than total. The double-minded man or woman is one who has a divided attention. You have one eye on one goal and one eye on the other. You have one foot in one camp and one foot in the other. You have one, one part of you that longs for eternity and longs to live better for God, but you have another part of you that longs to be living for this world and to be part of this world. Could I ask you, before I really get stuck into the meat of my message today, could I ask you, does that describe you? I think if we were being honest, all of us, preachers included, will have to say that there have been periods of our lives when that's described us. Times when we've been double-minded, our devotion has been less than total, our attention has been divided between the things of this world and the things that are above. I want to speak to you this afternoon about Paul's secrets for a steadfast mind. He had a lot to say about the mind, as I've said. He he spoke to an assembly that had a little problem in it, a little assembly in Philippi, we'll get there in a little bit, but just just prior to that, in chapter 2. As he's going to deal with that that issue that existed between two sisters in the assembly there, he says, let this mind be in you. Let this mind. And what does he then speak to them about? He tells them about the mind of Christ. A mind that was sufficiently humble, totally humble, in order that he would leave behind the glories of heaven. He would not grasp onto, he would not hold onto it and use it as leverage for himself, but rather... His desires were to come. He was made in fashion as a man. He took upon him the form of a servant. Says Paul, he says, this is the kind of mind that you should have in you. Paul speaks only not, not only about the, having that particular mindset within us. He speaks about the renewing of the mind. He says, if you're going to survive the Christian life, you need to have a renewed mind. He says, not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. Dear young brother, young sister, I wonder whether I could encourage you today. See that advice that I was giving out last evening, and I wish that in everything I lived up to it myself. But that advice that I was giving, set your affections on things above. It is incumbent upon every one of us that if we are going to be like that and living like that, be living like that, we must have a renewed mind. We must have a mind not just that is regenerate. That's important, of course. We'll get there in just a moment. But we must have a mind that is within us that is constantly renewed in the things of God and constantly refreshed in God's things. Says Paul, he says, let this mind be in you. Have a renewed mind. Well, we've read this evening, we read this afternoon about Ruth, who was steadfastly minded. The first thing I want to speak to you about is from Romans chapter 8. And in Romans chapter 8, the apostle Paul is really speaking now about the benefits and the blessings of salvation. I I love the start of Romans 8. There is no condemnation to the person that is in Christ Jesus. What a blessed blessed thing to know. To be in Christ is to be beyond condemnation. To be in Christ is to be beyond, beyond the judgment of God. Isn't that a good thing to be saved? 
to have divine life within, and to know that the condemnation that does come will come to those that are outside of Christ, to know that it will never come because it once in the darkness of Calvary fell upon him is a blessed thing to know. And that's what Paul's theme is at the beginning of Romans chapter 8. He starts to go through that. He says, but you know, it's possible. It's possible that even though positionally you're living, you are in the Spirit and you have the Spirit, he says, but it's, it, it's possible to be, to be carnally minded. The first thing that I want to speak to you about this steadfast mind is that the first secret, as far as Paul is concerned, is you need a spiritual mind. I think the basic point that I want to say to you, but I'll, I'll develop a little bit, it a little bit more, the basic thing that I really want to say to you is that it is impossible to have a steadfast mind, at least as far as Ruth is concerned, as an example, and at least as far as the Scriptures are concerned, as that, it takes up a steadfast mind. I know there are people that have free soloed up El Cap and all of this kind of stuff, and they needed a certain kind of steadfastness of mind to do that kind of thing. That's not the kind of steadfastness of mind that we're talking about. That won't last at all in eternity. But as Paul is speaking here, the basic thing that he's getting across is this, that in order, the secret number one to a steadfast mind is salvation. Salvation. You say... <laughs> You've, you've missed your brief this afternoon. This isn't a gospel meeting. Well, I'm aware of that. But I want to make this point. As Paul is writing, he is telling them this. Listen, a spiritual mind. A mind that is anchored in God. And a mind, therefore, that can be steadfast. Staying its course. Setting its affections on the things above. Is a mind that is a mind that has been regenerated. A mind that understands something about salvation. But that's not just the message that Paul is developing here. He's going beyond that. He's saying, listen, you believers, he says, you might, you, you might have spiritual minds technically, he says, but can I ask you, are you living in the good of that? Do you know practically in your life what you have experienced positionally before God? Do you have an understanding of the practical impact of what it is to be saved, to know divine life, says the apostle as he writing through this. He says, listen, to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. You might be asking the question, well, that's all very well and good. I am saved and uh, it's good to be saved. And I, and, I, and I hear what you're saying about that. I should be matching up my practice in my life to the position that I have before God. Really, that is the whole message of the New Testament. But uh, I understand that. But, but tell me, answer me a question. Why do I still sin? I wonder if there's a believer today and you're, you're wondering about that. Frustrated. Feeling that you're not really making progress because the lusts of the flesh still grip you. Let me let you into a little secret. The lusts of the flesh, in whatever form they present, will grip you to the day Christ returns or you go by means of the grave. When you were saved, the flesh was neither removed Neither was it improved. Salvation was not taking the old flesh and giving it a bit of a polish up and a makeover and painting it down a little bit and uh, dressing it up in nice clothes and saying, well, there you go. That's what salvation looks like. Not at all. Salvation was the impartation of divine life. But we're still in these old bodies. And still in these old bodies, we have the flesh in. We have the flesh within us to the day of redemption or the day of the grave. You say, well, I suppose that gives us a little comfort, but uh, 
How do I deal with that? Can I give you a little bit of advice? The lusts of the flesh mean that we are all susceptible to the impact of the flesh. We've been hearing a little bit about it this afternoon. You say, there are things that come into my mind and I don't invite them there. I don't design them. I don't put them there. That may be true. Can I just say one thing about that? What you expose yourself into life will make you more susceptible to the things that come into your mind. But it might be true that things come into your mind, you didn't invite them there, and you look around one day and you think, where did that come from? It's the next thing that's important. What do you do with it? What Paul is saying in this chapter here is mortify it, put it to death, eradicate it. Dear young brother, do you have thoughts that come into your mind and you think maybe they even cause you to wonder whether you're saved? Listen, I'll tell you the best thing that you can do with that. Kill it right, stone dead. Right at that moment in time, the very point that it enters your mind, make it the point of exit for your mind. Have answers from the Word of God. I cannot endorse that advice. All of the temptations of Scripture are answered by the Word of God. Have it readily available. Have it within your mind. Says Paul, the first thing, if you want to be in a position where you are living a steadfast life, is a life, is having a mind that is spiritual. This is, I think about it. Uh, there was a time in history at the end of World War II. And good old Churchill, I say good old Churchill, our country wishes Churchill was still around, I can tell you that for nothing. But anyway, there was Churchill surveying the scene. And uh, Churchill was, uh, he was faced with a decision. You see, his previous allies, the French, uh, they had sold out to the, to the Nazis. And uh, you might say, well, it wasn't too much of a problem. Well, in some ways, I suppose not. But in another way, it was a big problem because the French had the second biggest naval fleet in the whole of Europe. And there it was. It was positioned just off the, the coast of Algeria. And Churchill's pacing up and down one night in his study, wondering what he's going to do about this. The Nazis have now control over the second biggest fleet. And they were still trying to negotiate with the Nazis about what their surrender would be and all of, that, all of this kind of thing. Churchill had the answer. He ordered the ruthless attack and obliteration there. It still stands in history as one of the most, in the minds of some at least, one of the most mercenary military acts that's ever taken place. And the four, his, Britain's former ally, the French, with its huge mili, uh, naval fleet stationed there just off the coast of Algeria and the Mediterranean, under attack one night, was completely obliterated and life was lost. You say... Well, that sounds pretty ruthless, yet it was. Let me just use that as an illustration. That is what we need to do with the flesh. That former ally that is within us, it's a former ally. It's now the biggest enemy. Says God, mortify, put to death the deeds of the flesh. I'm thinking now in terms of Titus chapter 2. So much for being steadfast-minded and having a spirit or needing a spiritual mind. What about something else here that Paul says? Paul's writing to a, a younger man, I think, probably, maybe not as young as Timothy, but younger than Paul, likely. He says, like Timothy, he's given him a mission to do. Timothy, you'll stay in Ephesus and you'll put, write some things there. He says, I'm going to leave you, Titus, I'm going to leave you on Crete. Crete was not the holiday destination that it is these days. And so there was Titus. You can read about what those Cretans were like. They were vagabonds, and even their own poets had a fair bit to say about them. And there's poor old, 
poor old Titus on Crete. He says, Titus, he says, you've got a job to do. He says, I want you number one. He says, I want you to go around and in all of the churches, in all of the cities, I want you to raise up elders. Now, that wasn't mean that Titus was to go around and touch on different ones and say, well, there you are. But what Titus was to do was to give the assembly's criteria for what, what guaranteed an elder, what showed an elder. And so he writes out there a whole section that gives us the qualifications for an elder. He says, but also, he says, and I anticipate that this is probably more to do with the pressing things that needed to be dealt with. The long-term view was to put the elders in position there. The short-term view, he says, you need to set a few things right. There's, there's some things that are going wrong in the, in the assemblies in Crete. He says, and, and you need to set things in order. And the way you're going to do it, Titus, is you're going to do it by sound doctrine. And here's what I want you to do. He says, first of all, I want you to speak to the aged men. And then having spoken to the aged men, he says, I want, then you want you to go and speak a little bit to the aged women. He says, and sp having spoken to the aged women, he says, I then want you to speak to the younger women. And then having spoken to the younger women, I want you to speak to the younger men. He's really embracing the whole of the society. Every demographic, really, that was in that, in that assembly or in those assemblies. Paul is saying to Titus, Titus, I've got a word for you. And I've got something to say. Now, there are differences between what he wanted them to do. There are very specific callings. For example, the older women had a very specific role that they needed to do. And the younger women, they had to receive something from the older women, and they were to go off and do something. And the younger men, they were given something, and the aged men were given something. But there's one feature that is absolutely central to all four of those groups. He tells every one of them, be sober. Sober. You say, oh, this is taking a serious turn for the worse. So, sober. This is near the end of the conference. We're looking for something a bit lighter and something to raise us and cheer us and all of the rest of it. And, uh, well, maybe we'll get there in a moment. But uh, just for the time being, I want to just concentrate your minds on being sober-minded. You see, we're, we're too sober-minded. We're... Uh, we're living in an age where we're criticized because we're just, we're just too cardboard on the front. And, uh, you know, we're accused of not being able to get emotions out of us. And we need to get rid of all of that kind of sober mindedness, that kind of stuff. And, and we need to present a bit lighter on the outside, a bit, a bit like we're a little bit more engaging and a little bit more loving and a little bit. Listen, that's a false dichotomy. When Paul was speaking to Titus and saying, Titus, I want you to speak to all of these groups and tell them that they need to be sober. And these young men in particular, in the last instruction, in fact, that was pretty much all they were told. Tell the young men to be sober-minded. I wonder whether there's, I wonder whether Paul was a little bit more insightful than we might think there. If ever there's a, I mean, don't take this personally, I was one myself once, and it wasn't that long ago, but if ever there was a group of society that needs to be told to be sober-minded, in my experience, it's the younger men. Well, you can all queue up afterwards and, and speak to me about it if you want to. But uh, that was Paul. Be sober-minded. Paul wasn't saying that sober-mindedness is this exterior that looks dour and disinterested and deflects all kind of emotion that comes its way and has no interest in people and has no interest in, in, uh, in the passions and the, the emotions of life. That's not what Paul's saying at all. You read through Paul's writing and you'll find a man that was very emotional. 
You'll find a man that was very, his heart bled. His heart went out to the assemblies of God's people. His great interest was that they might flourish and that they might enjoy the full, the full realm and panacea of Christian living. He wasn't telling them that they needed to present on the outside. You see, this is the problem. We think soberness is present something that presents on the outside. Soberness is a state of mind, says Paul. Tell them to be sober-minded. What was he telling them? Well, really, you could translate the word like, a bit like this. He was telling them that they needed to be serious. If ever we lived in an age that's not serious, it's this age. This age in which we live tells you that, well, yet, there's always tomorrow. It'll all work out okay in the end. You don't need to overly concern yourselves with the, with the important things in life. Just kind of surf your way through and you'll get there ultimately. That was the complete opposite of what Paul was telling them. Be sober-minded. You know, I, I think, and again, I speak to myself, but I think what local assembly testimony needs in 2019 on both sides of the Atlantic is men and women, aged men and aged women, and young men and young women that are sober-minded, that are serious-minded, that are living seriously. That is, this is what it really comes down to. That are living seriously for the things of God. That are serious about setting their affections on the things above and not the things of this world. That have their eye in eternity and not in time. That are seeing the, the hereafter world, not the now world. Those that have a vision that is lifted and raised. People with vision for the gospel and for the outreach of the local assembly. Those that are willing to commit to the pattern of local assembly testimony. That's what having a serious mind is. It's not about presenting on the outside and being grave and being unwelcoming and all the rest of it. You can be sober-minded and be the most loving, embracing, joyful Christian that you've ever met. But I'm telling you, what Paul is saying here is that there is a great need in Crete. And there's a great need in New Jersey and Massachusetts and right across the U.S., and back in Bicester, and right throughout the United Kingdom, and even Northern Ireland. There's a great need today for men and women who will be sober-minded, that will go in seriously for the things of God, that will not be distracted by the things that are around us. You know, there's a lot to distract us. Our brother has helpfully covered a good deal of it, and so I'll just score that line out of my notes. But I, I just, I endorse everything that he said. There's something, do you know what I used to think <clears throat> when I was a younger man and sport really was my thing? I used to think to myself, it used to trouble me. It's a good sign, I think, but anyway, it used to trouble me. Why am I so interested in this? And then I would say to myself, well, it's okay, you're only 20, 25, uh, whatever. Uh, that'll wear off. The flesh will it'll just wear away. You don't need to worry about that. And the interests of the world, it, it will just lose its appeal and, and, and there will be no... Do you know what I found? The devil is a, he's a, he's a cunning adversary. What he has done is he is with genius. He has engineered the world around us to appeal to the lusts of the flesh. And he's done it in such a way that as we just slide along the scale of life, the lusts of the flesh just slide along with us. 
And so at every stage of life, there's a different thing that will take you out and take you down or whatever. There's something that will distract you. There are distractions aplenty. There are distractions wherever you turn. And in the age in which we live, the internet age, there are distractions even on a little piece of, what is it, OLED, LCD, I don't know, whatever you have, delete is appropriate. Distractions right into the palm of your hand. Do you know, I, 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 maybe I should confess here. <clears throat> I have an iPhone. And on the latest iteration of the operating system, they brought out a feature that has rendered me a hypocrite. It's called screen time. And every Lord's Day morning, I don't know why it's Lord's Day morning, I didn't program it, but it just happens every Lord's Day morning before I go out to remember the Lord, I get a little message on my screen that tells me what I have done that week, what I've looked at, whether it was entertainment as described by Apple. Uh, it kind of views virtually everything as entertainment. But anyway, entertainment, productivity, and it goes through the different classes of whatever it is, and it tells me, gives me a report of what I've been... I was astounded at the amount of time I must be wasting just on my little piece of technology in my pocket. He's a genius. The devil, not Steve Jobs. He's engineered it right into the palm of our hand. Listen, younger brother, younger sister, I think this is more relevant to you, although there are plenty of older people as well, that could do the same, but I think it's more relevant to you, given that you are probably digitally native, as they tell me. You could waste your life and ruin your potential for Christ with a $1,000 gadget that sits in your pocket. That is the reality of it. Now, I'm not decrying it. I have one. <clears throat> but I'm telling you this. Be careful with it. Use it for the Lord. Use it for whatever you need it in your life. Use it, find my friends to keep an eye on where your family are and that kind of thing. Do all of that if you will. But I'll tell you this, that that thing that resides in your pocket has the potential to destroy you and to ruin you and to render you useless for God. So says Paul, a sober mind, a spiritual mind. As I close, I want to speak to you from Philippians chapter 3 about having a single mind. Philippians chapter 3 is one of the most searching passages in the whole of Scripture. Here's the dear apostle writing to an assembly that had a problem within it, as I've just been saying. And as he's speaking to them, he tells them a number of interesting things. He says, have no confidence in the flesh. Don't place your vote in the power of the flesh. He says, listen, here's what I did with the flesh. He says, I counted everything that I had in the flesh, and I counted it as loss for Christ. What did he have, you say? He had everything. He was of the highest ilk. We were thinking about it earlier, really, a little bit over at Livingston. He, he, had, he was of the best ilk, the best caliber Jew that was in the land. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, and he was a Pharisee of the Pharisee, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and he had all of everything going, every spiritual advantage that you have. Do you know what he did? He scooped the whole lot up. He got it in his arms one day, and he says, I count it all dung for Christ, so that Christ might be all in all. Verse 3 says, you know, I don't, but I don't consider that I've laid hold on this. <laughs> this thing that he's given me, he says, I don't consider that I've apprehended it, that I've laid hold of it. He says, it, here's the design of my life. Here's the purpose of my life. He says, I press on. I have laid hold on it. He says, but I press on so that I may lay hold 
of his purpose in laying hold of me. You say, that sounds like Dutch. Well, let me explain it to you. As God laid hold on Paul and gave him his vocation in life, saved him, pulled him out of the misery of his sin, set him on the road to heaven, as he pulled out of that, he laid hold on him. And says Paul, in his laying hold on me, what I have done, what I am doing, is I am laying hold on his purpose for laying hold on me. I'm laying hold of the prize. I am trying to attain the prize. I'm going forward. What am I doing? I have my eye upon the goal, the one goal. There's nothing else to live that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, being made conformable unto his sufferings. You know, that passage of Scripture, one of the most searching passages in the whole of Scripture. This is Paul's ambition, that I may know him, that I might have a single mind, that I might go in for things that will bring me closer to him, that I might avoid the distractions of this world, that I might attain things for God. It requires a single mind. You know, in the world in which we live, they sometimes have a little phrase. <clears throat> and I find it helpful from time to time, particularly when you're faced with difficulties and circumstances in life. A brother was speaking earlier about keeping your eye on the big picture. Well, that's helpful as well. This is really the same thing. Make sure in life that you keep the main thing the main thing. That's what Paul was doing. I pressed towards the prize, the main thing. And I keep pressing towards it. I'm keeping in my experience the main thing, the main thing, so that I will not be distracted by all of that which is around us. I'm adopting an eternal perspective. I'm viewing, I'm casting myself into the future as if I'm already there and saying, what kind of life do I need to live now in order to make sure that I'm not feeling bereft in eternity? In reality, I don't think there's any one of us that will be bereft in eternity, but you know what, I, you know what I'm driving at. We sometimes sing this, the, the hymn. I don't know if you know it over here. It was a favorite of a very popular preacher over on our side of the Atlantic, Mr. Jack Hunter. By and by, when I look on his face, I wish I had given him more. Says Paul, I keep the main thing, the main thing. I press towards the prize. I put myself in eternity and view everything looking back. Mind you, that would change our perspective on everything, wouldn't it? I was speaking to a, a believer recently who had been through some very difficult circumstances in life, circumstances that I've never been through. And they were just struggling to, to just to cope with it and to and to deal with the hurt and the circumstances and all of the feelings that they felt, the emotions that went with that. <clears throat> and I felt very inadequate and very really incapable of, of speaking to it. But I was trying to encourage, and another brother that was with me, we're trying to encourage and incentivize them in, in adopting the divine perspective. He says to us, what does the divine perspective look like in this circumstances? And the brother that was with me said, forgiveness. Forgiveness. Do you know where I am? Do you know what I've been through? I really, I, the hairs are kind of standing up on the back of my neck as I say it, because who knows, who knows what tomorrow brings forth? Any one of us. Paul says, <clears throat> there's a perspective that will get us through this life. That steadfast mind that we need, that steadfast mind that each of us need, not just to survive, but to really make the best of it. 
and to stand in eternity before him. It's that perspective that we need. He says it comes. It's a steadfast mind. He says it comes from a spiritual mind. It comes, it comes from a sober, a serious mind. And it comes, it comes from a singular mind. A mind that is totally sold out on God. A mind that is totally devoted to Him. Says Paul, I press toward the price of the high calling. May that be just this afternoon, just what we do. What we try to do at least. Says the narrator of the book of Ruth. He says, when she was steadfastly minded. And then the next verse. So the two of them came to Bethlehem. May God bless his word, shall we pray?